Hey, well, once again, welcome to Four Corners. We really are glad that you're here and you chose to be with us this morning. So as pastors Nate and Matt said, we're, finish, or we're continuing our message series called Detox. It's week two. Today, I'm going to talk with you about decluttering, getting some margin, a little bit of breathing room in your calendar. And it's no secret that a lot of us are over busy. We're overcommitted and overextended. So we talked about that last week, kind of setting this whole thing up. And I talked about how that if your closet's cluttered or your attic is overfilled or your garage, you can't move around. That, that, you know, that's just stuff. That's fine. Sometimes it's even a little comical. But when your life is that way, that's not so funny anymore. And so we talked practically last week. If you weren't here, you can get that online um, if you like at www.fourcornerschurch.com and you can click the message tab there on your page. You can watch what we talked about. But today I want to drill down on one of the subtopics uh, and it's the subject of time. And, and, and it's a very important topic because you and I have time and most of us are pretty overextended. And if you, listen, if you're not personally overextended today, good for you, but there are a lot of us that are. And what we're trying to do is figure out how to make the best with the time uh, that we have, how to make the best of our experience, create a little bit of breathing room. So I got a lot of feedback last week on the message series, and it seems like a lot of folks um, thought that the most practical application they could do is go home and clean their closets. And I, I'm really, really grateful that, that, that you did that. Jill and I went home, made our kids clean the garage. It was really good. Um, we, we had a good time with that. It feels much better. But now, you can get everything else organized around you, but if you don't get your life organized, then, then you're in a mess. And so when we're talking about this idea of creating breathing room or getting a little margin, here's what we're talking about. Getting a little bit of space between the current pace of your life and your personal limits. Your limits may be higher than mine. You may have greater capacity in time management or financial management or in your relationships than I do, but you still have a limit. And when you're at your limit and you're living on the edge in your calendar or in your finances, emotionally in your relationships, and there's no room to just take a breath, there's nothing fun about that. Because for most of us, here's the truth, for most of us, our happiness can be measured by the quality of our relationships. And when we don't have margin in calendar or in money or in our emotions, then the quality of our experience tends to drop. And here's how you know your quality of your experience is dropping. You begin to experience stress. Your stress goes up. Your focus narrows. You get kind of myopic about the stuff in life. And there are important things on the right and left of you, maybe very close to you, but you can't even see these important things because you're so focused right here because you've been squeezed into that place. And we see this happen in our time. And when it happens in our time, not only does it impact our sense of stress, and not only do we get kind of narrowly focused in an unhealthy way, but our relationships tend to suffer. Our relationships tend to suffer. And so believe it or not, God's word, the Bible, speaks to this very topic in a very practical way. You, you, you guys know the Bible. It's that book that often stays on the shelf, and some of us, we won't read it because we're kind of afraid to, or we, or we don't understand it, or we, in our minds, think, hey, we, you know, I don't believe that. I don't need to go there. But, but God's word really does speak practically to the subject of time in, in a way that I think whether you're a follower of Jesus today or whether you're investigating your faith or maybe, you know, you, you've already decided and you don't want anything to do with it. I think no matter where you are in the spiritual spectrum today, you can get some practical benefit from this book we call the Bible as it relates to time and schedule. And then making sure, and here's kind of the point, making sure that the first things to you, the most important things to you 
really are the most important things to you. That for you, by your own measurements, that the things that are most important for you really are most important. That you have enough time to live and do the things that are important to you. That in your schedule making, in your calendar, the things that are most important to you, that are the first priorities, really are being lived out. And when you're very, very busy and overcommitted and overscheduled, what tends to happen is the first things, rather than being first in reality, they drop lower on the priorities list. We just don't have time to do them. And the things that are most important don't get our best attention. The things that are urgent tends to get our best attention as opposed to the most important things. And here's how you might know that you are one of the people like me who struggles with this thing of keeping first things first and priorities where they need to be and not overscheduling myself so that I don't have anything left, no breathing room left for what's really important in my life. Uh, you'll know that you're like me if, for instance, you're always catching yourself saying this phrase, uh, I just, I might be 15 minutes late. Or, or I might have to leave 10 minutes early. And you find yourself driving too fast in the car and you're eating in the car. And when you're at work, you're thinking about work. And when you're at home, you're thinking about, uh, when you're at work, you're thinking about home. When you're at home, you're thinking about work. And maybe if you're single, you're, you can't say no to anything. And so like in the, in the late 80s and 90s, when I was kind of beginning uh, my, my uh, early stages of adulthood, um, since I'm 28, it's, it was a miracle I was able to do that. Um, and the time management seminars became all the rage and Stevie Covey Institute and day planners and all this stuff. And so you would pay to go to a seminar to help somebody, have somebody help you learn how to manage your time. And, and those are great skills and probably a lot of us in the room could benefit from that. But I discovered every time I'd go to one of these time management seminars that really at the end of the day, a lot of them were trying to sell me something, trying to sell me a product. And I discovered that I could buy the product and I could even spend time trying to get organized. But a lot of times, like my personality didn't match up with the tool or, or maybe I just didn't get it. And I discovered that for me, a lot of times the time management stuff just wasn't working and I still would regularly find myself crowded in my schedule and I wasn't living so that first things were first and important things were really getting my time and the schedule was just getting full and chaotic. Now, so just so you know where we're headed today, I'm going to share with you one practical truth from God's Word and one practical application so that if you're like me, not oriented, so that time management seminars don't make you think, you can still be benefited from the very simple and clear truth from God's Word today. And if you're like a lot of folks in the room and, and you know, you just maybe, you're one of those people and you like a messy closet because you know that... You, that you know where everything is and your parents may not like it, but you know where it is. Your husband doesn't like it or your wife doesn't, but you know where everything is. And, and that's all well and good in your closet. But if, if that's creeping into your life, then you still today can find one clear truth from God's word that we're going to talk about and one clear application that I think no matter where you are can help you because it's a truth that none of us can really escape. And if, you're, if your closet is busy and you're, or crowded and your garage is a mess and your attic is overfull, well and good. But let's make sure that today at least you think about where your life is and that you don't settle for that because the, here's the truth. God doesn't want you to be so compressed and pushed in on life that you can't make the things that are most important to you really be important. You you're, you're so full that the important things really can't be important. Because here, here's the truth for all of us. Your time is your life. And as your time goes by, your life goes by. And as your schedule goes, so goes your life. 
So right there, in the middle of your Bible, God put a chapter in there. And literally, if you like, go to the middle of the book and like open it up like this, it's almost like directly square in the middle of your Bible. It's a, it's, a, it's a book of the Bible called the book of Psalms. The chapter is chapter 90. And this chapter deals with the whole issue that we're talking about today. It deals with time and our perspective on time and what we should understand about time and how this understanding can change everything for us. And it was written by a guy in the Bible that you've probably heard of. His name is Moses. Now, if you've been around church for a while, and when I say that Moses wrote one of the Psalms, sometimes you think, whoa, the Psalms are by David. And, and most of the Psalms in your Bible, 150 of them, most of them are written by the little shepherd boy, David. And he would look at life, and he would deduce certain things, and God would help him understand things, and he'd write them down in kind of a, of a poetic or a sing-songy kind of way. And those writings were compiled in a book of the Psalms. But the truth is, there's about five other authors of the Psalms who have different pieces of their work included in that book of your Bible called the book of Psalms and Moses is one of them and if anybody that's ever lived had a unique perspective on time it was Moses here's something you may not know about Moses Moses lived to be 120 years old that's that's a pretty good run Jill's grandmother is 93 and she still drives so this is a good reason not to waste your money going to Florida Um, she's on the roads folks and uh Bless her. I love this lady to death. I mean, she, she's near and dear to my heart. We have a really solid friendship. But over the years, I've seen her grow from about 5'4 to about 4'6. And, um, and she, she drives her little car around. But, and she's 93 and still gets around. But Moses, the Bible says, lived to 120. And he didn't just live to be 120. He, she, he, the Bible says it's kind of one unique phrase that at 120, Moses could still see. So, so like when I read the Bible and I come across a line like Moses could still see, it, it helps me to believe in the veracity of, of the scriptures because when you're just you know, using a parable or trying to make a point, you leave out little details that are really don't add to the story. But at 120, Moses could still see. We get that little bit of, of insight about him that his life to the very end of his life was very vibrant. It was very active. In fact, there were four major movements in his life that give Moses a unique perspective. And it's out of that perspective that he pens the words we're going to look at in a moment. The first major movement of Moses' life was he grew up in Pharaoh's house, the head of Egypt. Egypt at the time was the world superpower. All the money, all the power, all the military might, all the political stability was centered in Egypt. Moses grew up in the number one dude's house, He had it going on. He had a a flat screen in his own Xbox 360 in his bedroom. I mean, he, growing up, he had it all. He, he drove the best chariot. All the other guys wanted his chariot. All the other girls wanted to ride in his chariot. You you get the idea. Moses had the best possible life, best education, uh, best organization. He had servants at his beck and call. And for the first 40 years of his life, he lived as a prince in Egypt. That was the first phase. Now, the second phase of his life, very different because of some choices he's made. And he didn't know it yet, but because God is sending him on his way, Moses finds the next phase of his life as him playing the role of a shepherd in the desert. He leaves Egypt and he's in like deserted areas and he's a shepherd with a small band of sheep around him. And his job is to take them to water and to green places. And there aren't a whole lot of green places in that deserted, rocky place. So he has to move them around to help them find water and grass to eat and care for them when they, you know, get hurt and and keep the the wild animals away and make sure they're put into the pen at night. And that's kind of what he does. And so for 40 years, from 40, zero to 40 in Egypt, from 40 to 80, he's with these shepherds. And then at about 80 years old, he makes his way back to Egypt. And he's no longer the prince 
but this time he's the, the center of attention. It's a very short period of his life where everything that happened, Moses is a part of it. People would open their paper the next morning, every morning, and they would want to read what Moses had done the day before. Uh, what did he say to Pharaoh yesterday? And what plagues is he going to rain down on us today? And Moses is at the center of attention. And this is that point in the story of Moses where he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Did, did I sound like Charlton Heston there uh, at all? A little bit. I, I tried to bring the deep voice there. But, uh, this is the really unique phase of his life where it's full of conflict and challenge and difficulty. So three phases. And then the next phase of his life, phase number four, he finds himself in those deserted places again, the, the desert and arid and rocky places. And he's not leading sheep around this time. Now he's leading people around. Now here's the thing when I kind of quickly give you the cursory uh, overview of Moses' life. Moses didn't know that's where his life was going. He lived the first 40 years of his life thinking this is what life's like. And then he had a major turn. He lives the next phase of his life thinking, this is what life is like. And then there's a major turn. And in the middle of the conflict, he's thinking, this must be what life is like. He has no idea what's coming next. And then he lives that last experience. And then the Bible says something unique about Moses. That Moses doesn't make it to the promised land. That's the story. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go. We're going to go to our own land that God's given us. We don't even know where it is. We're just going to follow him. And when he gets right to the edge of the thing, God calls Moses up on a mountain. At 120 years old, the Bible tells us that God just kind of takes Moses, that that's the end for him. And I guess the reason the Bible tells us that Moses could still see, because on the top of the mountain, all he was able to do was see the promised land. He didn't even get to go into it. Now, I tell you all that to help you understand the perspective that Moses had when he begins to talk to us about time in this kind of poetic, metaphoric way, right there snuggled in the middle of your Bible. All right, so with all that said, turn, if you don't mind, to Psalm chapter 90, if you haven't already, or open up your, your phone there, look at the screens on the side if you want, and let's kind of look slowly through this passage. And when we get to the end, you'll have one key truth that whether you're a Jesus follower or not, you're going to agree with, and then you're going to have one pure, simple application that I think, if you'll take it seriously, can make a dramatic difference in your life to make sure that the first things, the things that are important to you, really are being lived out. All right, so here, here's the verses. Here's what it says. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Moses is talking in a community of people who have been following Jesus. Uh, at this point, they're following God. Jesus hasn't quite come, but they're, they're kind of following God in, in, in their way of life. And he's saying, God, in the middle of all of our existence, you're here. So my perspective, before I even look at the world around me, is I want to acknowledge that you're here in the middle of things, that you've been directing the generations long before I got here. You'll be in charge after I'm gone. It really, God, this is about you. And he centers the first part of this passage, this paragraph, this poetic understanding about time, he centers it, first of all, not just on our experience, but about God. He gives context to our experience, letting us know that we experience it, but what we experience falls under the bigger umbrella of God's experience. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all the generations. And then he says, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I, I love that image. If you're an English teacher in here, you know, he's using metaphor to draw kind of abstract truths and make them concrete before the mountains were born. Mountains aren't born, but you get the idea. Moses is saying, God, you were there at creation. He, he's a creationist. Uh, you are part of that. But before anything that we see before anything strikes our eyes, you were existing before all that took place. And then this last phrase he uses is just a powerful phrase. 
Now, who in here knows what math in high school um, occurs after the algebra class? Typically, in a normal schedule, what do you take next after algebra? Yeah, exactly. That's the math you take. And so you'll remember from that class that there's a line, and a line is defined by this. A line exists on a plane, and it has no end uh, and no beginning. All right, so that's what these arrows represent. So Moses says, God, here's the way time really works from your perspective. At the beginning... And at the end, whatever that looks like, in the past and in the future, you just are there. It just goes on and on. That, God, you have no beginning. You have no end. And so when I'm getting ready to explore time and understand time, the first thing that I need to understand, God, is is that for you, you're outside of it. You get to experience it all, but you're not bound by time. You're limitless. And so you're from everlasting past to everlasting future with no end. That's what he says. Before the mountains were born and you brought forth the world from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Somewhere though, between the ends, whatever they look like, there's this one little sliver, this one little point on the line. There's this one little point on the line wherever it falls and that's us. That's our experience. Though time ultimately is endless, You, God, live in that endless, limitless place. That's not our experience. We have a very limited perspective. And he starts to explore this. God, in light of what I want to understand about time, the first point is is that you are limitless. But then in verse 3, he begins to talk about how, although God is limitless, we have limits. This this gets us back to our, our key point. Margin, or breathing room, is the space that exists between the current pace of our life and our personal limits. You have and I have personal limits on time. You know this intuitively. We just don't think about it that often. Moses lives his 120 years near the end of his days while he still has all of his you know, faculties about him. He still is engaged in the world. He can still see at that old age. He's thinking about time and he wants us to understand something because he thinks it'll make a difference in our lives. And he says, God, first of all, you're everlasting. And then verse 3 says, this everlasting God, you turn people back to dust. Saying, return to dust, you mortals. When I read that, I hear it this way. Return to dust, you mortals. Kind of like the greatest Gandalf statement ever made. You you shall not pass. You You guys don't watch the movies, huh? The Lord of the Rings. I am such a geek. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm okay with that. I really am. I'm totally okay with that. When I, when I read this phrase, return to dust, ye mortals, besides reminding me of like a Lord of the Rings kind of statement, uh, it lets us know that Moses is trying to wrestle with the fact that God is eternal and limitless, and yet our existence is nothing but a small sliver on the horizon of time. That the limit is, is that we don't have a God-like experience. We are not limitless that we, all of us, have a small piece to enjoy along the horizon of eternity. It's a very small piece that there is a real limit and we really can't change it. Now, most of us, whether you've thought about this or not, believe that God is somehow involved in the days of our lives, that, that, that he's a part of it. And if, if you don't believe me, atheist or not, if you don't, if you don't believe me, uh, just look at the common experience here where somebody realizes that they have a terminal disease or somebody they love is terminal. And you'll find atheists and believer alike calling on God, God help. Or, or they'll say, you know, my God, help, help me, help me, help them, help them. To some degree or another, we all assume that God is involved. Now, whether God's causing the length of our days, you know, causing people to die or whether he's aware of it, that's a, for a different debate. But 
The acknowledgement that God is somehow involved in our days is an important acknowledgement. It's part and parcel to, to what the Bible, the whole of the Bible says, that you don't just have a God that exists, and you don't just have a limited experience, but those two things intersect. God is a part of our limited experience, that he's involved in it, that to, to some degree, our days and his experience overlaps. And Moses is starting to wrestle with this near the end of his time. He's getting the perspective of having lived a very full life, and he's starting to wrestle with what this looks like. What does it look like to say that God's eternal and I'm not? And then he says, uh, verse number four, he says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Now, in the biblical times, a watch was about a three-hour segment of time that a a shepherd or, or maybe a soldier would take as they were guarding the sheep or guarding a door and you would maybe have the first watch the first three hours. I would have the second watch the next three hours and somebody else might have the third watch indicating an entire night, three watches. And he says, God, a thousand years to you is like, like a three-hour period of time to us. I mean, your perspective versus our experience is radically different. In verse five, he says it this way. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning, this new grass, it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Moses says, our experience along the years is kind of like a, a grass. We experience it as 70, 80, 90, 120 years. But in light of God's experience, our experience is like this. It's like in the morning there's a fresh blade of, blade of grass that has just sprung forth from the seed. And then the sun comes out, and by night it's withered and gone. That's, he's just grappling, and he's wrestling with the fact. You know, that can you picture this older man who's lived a full life, and he's trying to wrestle with the fact that he's coming to the near end of his days. Verse 10, he says this. He says, our days may come to 70 years or 80, you know, or 93 or 120 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. No matter how good your life is, there's some difficulty there. And at the end, they all end the same. The, the, the death rate still hovers at about 100%. I mean, we're just, we're not going to escape it, right? For they quickly pass and will fly away. Now, some of you grew up in churches and you sung the song, I'll fly away. How many? Just raise your hands. Yeah, you've heard this song? Yeah, right here. This is where that comes from. You know, nearly, at some point we're gone and like the gravity's not going to hold and our existence here is over and we're, we're in another place, he says. He's just wrestling with the fact that while God is limitless, we have limits, don't we? I mean, and if you have somebody that like in your family that you love right now and they're sick, the, the limit of life is very alive to you. Or, or maybe someone you love has just passed, or maybe you're personally struggling with something today. You're very aware of the limit. But here's the truth about most of us. We don't live our lives as if we know that we get a sliver along the time horizon. We get a small, very small, preciously small segment of time. Look, look at what Moses says, verse 11 now, as he starts kind of bringing it around and saying, all right, so what's the point here, God? I'm getting the perspective of where you are. I'm getting the perspective of where I am. He says this, if only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Now, this is a poetic way of saying, uh, by the way, before I even jump to what he, what he means, we don't really talk about wrath and anger that much anymore, do we? It, it was an ancient concept that Cyril has very much current 
um, impact on us, but it was an ancient concept, an ancient way of talking about how great and awesome God was. The idea was pretty simple. If God's really big and limitless and he has all the power and I don't and he's ruling the universe and I'm not and he's God and I'm not, then I probably don't want to tick him off because, you know, if he's really all that and he's mad at me, not good. So I don't want to make God mad. That was kind of the deal in a, in a simpler term. But the implications are broader than that. They have far-reaching implications. The idea is this, that Moses is saying, if we could see God as he really is and his grandeur in his bigness, then we'd probably give him the reverence that he deserves. If we could see God, how big he is, and just like how magnificent he is, that he really was there before the earth, and he's really going to be here after we're gone, and he, he's always existed, and he always will. If we could really see God this way, rather than making us like pander in simple fear, it would elevate our hearts to have him in the right place, and then put us somewhere way down on the totem pole after him. It's about understanding who God really is. The other thing he's doing here is he's giving us context for understanding our life. That our life, your life and mine, exists somewhere on this spectrum from everlasting to everlasting. And then in verse 12, here comes our pay dirt. In verse 12, he gets down to the one important lesson. That whether you're a believer or agnostic, atheist or Christian, this is true. And most of you will agree with me unless you just have an argumentative attitude about you, all right? Here's what Moses says. He says, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Another way of saying this is, teach us to live as if we know our days are numbered. Help us understand how limited we are. Don't let us go around living as if we are acting like we have all the time to do whatever we want to do. Don't let us keep putting off important things, acting, even if we haven't thought about it, we may not consciously believe it, but acting like we have all the time in the world to do anything we ultimately will need to do. Help us understand that we have a limited experience with time. And that when this time is over, we don't get another one. That once we've lived our 20s, you don't get to be 20 again. And I know some of you have been 29 like eight years. I get it. But once you've lived your 20s, and, and once you've, you know, like, there's a lot of life you can do over again. You know, you can go back to school and get a degree if, if you kind of bypass that when everybody else was doing it. And if, you're, if your marriage falters, you know, you, you can get another marriage. But there's a lot you can't do over again. You can't relive your 30s. I mean, once they're gone, they're gone. You can't re-raise that kid. Once you raise them, that's it. You know, you're done. There's a limit. And what happens then when we don't have any margin and we come up against the pace of our life where we're cramming in and we're stuffing in and one more experience and one more sense of obligation, that's our pace. And we come up against the limit of our lives. What happens then? Moses, having that experience, having lived that life and now kind of thinking about the whole thing says, in light of who you are, in light of who I am, in light of your limitlessness, and in light of my limitations, help me to remember that my days are numbered. That I don't get an unlimited supply. I can't just say, I'll get to that in about 60 years. Now, now ladies, let me, let me help you on your marriage just, just for a minute. Your husband, he understands this. And just, you know, when he tells you he's going to clean the garage, uh, he will. He knows, though, that he has six months a year to get to it. That's just, just the way it works. Because, you know, that's the way most of us do things, isn't it? We, we know that if we, if we ultimately think we're 
going to get to it. We know it's important. It, it, it's not lost on us in a, in a cosmic sense that we have limited time, but we put important things off and we believe deep down we're going to get to it. We, we all do this. We all, do, we all put things off. But we also know the other side of it where all of us have experienced times where we understood that our time was limited. Let me give you a few examples of those. Ladies, most of you in the room who've been married at least, you, you will experience this from the moment that you had a date on the calendar that says, this is my wedding day. Many of you know what it is to live with a sense of limited time. And for many of you, this is kind of a common experience. If you've been around somebody who's getting married, you've seen it. Probably, they probably made you sick like they do me. Um, it's a joke, not really. Have you ever been around one of those God, you know, like Bridezilla, you know, whew, one of the roughest jobs as a pastor right there, friends. You pray for me. I'm still in therapy. All right. Um, but you've been around those folks, and, and, and they know, all right, I've got 90 days or 120 days or a year till my wedding, and it kicks in, doesn't it? And they've got it all planned out, and they know what's going to happen. And then like the two or three days before, and so like they, they know who's picking them up where and who's doing their hair and you know, who's wiping their nose. They, they got it all figured out because that deadline is very loud in their life, and they're very aware of it. How, how about this more common? You had a test that you really wanted to pass, not one that you intended to blow off, and, and there's this test coming up, and here's the date, and you know it's there, and you, and you want to do well, and so here it is, and now you're three weeks out and two weeks out, and you know, and so it forces you, even if you wait till the night before, that deadline forces you to engage. Or professionally, you have a presentation to make and your boss is going to be there and his boss is going to be there or her boss is going to be there and all your colleagues around the table and you're, you're not going to drop the ball in that place. And there's the deadline and you can't change it. Nothing you say is going to get you out of it. You just need to bring the goods. And so that timing makes you do the thing. Here's what Moses is saying. What if we lived a number of our days, even if not all of them, what if we lived a number of our days with the sense that we are limited along the spectrum, we're limited, so that that sense of urgency, that sense of importance hit us. And we made sure that first things were first in our life, because we know we don't get another redo. And we made sure that important things were important to us. And we really did build into our schedule a pattern that made sure that when we get to the end, and that day comes, whenever it is, we get to the end that we will have lived that life with the first things being first and the important things being important. Moses is saying that we can, if we number our days, if we understand that they're numbered, he says at verse 12, the second part, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That we could gain a heart of wisdom here. That it could change everything. That we would realize that what we put into our schedule and what we keep out of our schedule needs to be a more conscious decision so that we're not getting so squeezed that we look back at the end of our days and go, oh, oh I, I wish I would have done something different. Oh, I don't, I don't have time now. I'm, I'm sick now. I can't re-engage. My kids have grown up now. The time has passed. I can't re-establish that thing. There's a lot you can do over, but there's a lot you can't. And Moses is wrestling with the limitation there's another lady, much more current, who wrestled with the limitations of earth. Her name is Bronnie Ware, and she lives in Australia. And for the last 12 years of her life, she has had the job of being with people in the last three months of their life or so. She worked in hospice care, dealing with terminally ill patients. 
And over the course of her 12 years or so, she began to notice some trends that as she helped people wrestle with the fact that they're near the end, that they're very aware, much more than most of us in this room, that their time is limited. And wrestle with what does that mean? And helping them get perspective and context and where does their experience fall along the spectrum of eternity? She began to notice some recurring ideas that these folks had. She identified five key regrets that people at that phase of life that she heard over and over again. Top five regrets of the dying, she calls her book, A Life Transformed by the Dearly Departing. That's what she calls her book. You can pick it up. It came out uh, early this year. You can look at this, but I want to share with you the top two, just the top two real quick. So the, the big key lesson for the day was, Lord, help me to know that my days are numbered, that you're limited. You don't get an unlimited supply and you get one go around and it matters, all right? But here, here's some, here, we're getting down now to the brass tacks of application. Here's the second most frequent thing she heard. I wish, I wish I didn't work so hard. I wish I didn't work so hard. I struggle to say that because I'm a hard worker. Uh, I'm a bit of a, a workaholic. I, t- I tend that way. And I don't want anybody to hear me say that you don't have to work hard. But somewhere between working hard and working too hard, <laughs> there's a healthy balance. And these folks near the end of their days, they wrestled with that. Here's what, they wrote, here's what they said and she wrote. This came from every single male patient that I nursed. Every single one of them. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been breadwinners, so they didn't maybe feel the same compulsion. I, I think that's changing in our culture. All of the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. Listen, if you only get one go around, if you're in high school or college, wake up, all right? You have an opportunity I don't have. Most of us in this room don't have. You have an opportunity to not get sucked into the lies that a lot of us have been sucked into. Yeah, you have to work hard and important things require engagement. But there's this treadmill that you don't need to get on, that many of us need to get off. And to stop overworking, driven by fear and compulsions that we haven't even analyzed or inspected. And if it's true that every single one of these men, and I've heard it too, my experience would bear this out, is I've sat with sick people, have done funerals, engaged people at that time of life. They come to the end and they say, why did I spend all this time working instead of... And then they begin to give a list of things that sounds very similar, and I bet you could fill in the list... Instead of engaging my kids, spending time with my spouse, making sure they know I love them, that they're important to me. Why didn't I spend more time doing this and not that? And instead, this thing called work consumed all my time. I put too much there. Wisdom learns from the experience of other people instead of having to experience yourself. What if, what if you understood your days were numbered and you didn't wait to come to the end of your days to come to the same conclusion that every single man she engaged came to? But instead, today you came to the conclusion, I'm going to make sure I don't work too hard because when I get there, that's not going to be an active regret for me. Of course you got to work hard. Of course you can come up with excuses. Of course you can argue me. But you can't argue with the commonality of this experience. It's something that wise people, people who want to be wise, need to take seriously and grapple with. That was number two. Here was number one. I think this is powerful. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. Here's what she writes. This was the most common regret of all. 
When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many of their dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. This is what Bronnie Ware writes. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. Let me ask you something. What's driving you to keep that calendar so full? Are you afraid? That, that's the number, number one. Afraid of, let me ask, what are you afraid of? Have you thought long enough? Have you taken a, a period of time to evaluate what's really driving you? I hear this. I'm afraid I'll be poor. I get it. I get it. That's a valid fear. But let me just ask you. Have, have you defined poor for you? What, what do you mean you're afraid to be poor? You're not going to have everything somebody else has? Is, is that really poor? I don't know how you need to answer that, but if you're afraid that you're going to be poor and that's what's driving you or that your kids are going to be poor, you probably should take some time and define poor and then ask yourself, is that a valid definition of poor and is that really what I'm trying to avoid? Or you feel like you're falling, falling behind. Let me, let me ask you, falling behind who? Falling behind what? I'm afraid my kids will fall behind if I don't drive, drive, drive and push, push, push. We don't fill, fill, fill. Who are you falling behind? And here's the important question. Is it worth you propping them, the culture or that group or that person up and letting them set the standard of your pace? Here's what I know about time. If you don't get serious filling your time with your priorities, making sure that your first things are your first things and your important things are your important things, there are a bunch of people that would love to fill your calendar. They would. They have an agenda and they would love to fill your calendar and let you live your life fulfilling their agenda. They would. And yet God looks at us and says, what if each one of us decided my days are limited so I need to limit what I do with my days. My time is limited, so I need to limit what I do with my time. I don't get another go around. And what if we didn't let our fears uninspected drive us? And what if we didn't let the agenda of other people drive us? And instead, we took some time occasionally, like maybe this week, and said, now what's really motivating me? What am I really afraid of? What's really driving me? Why is this so important to me? And you may discover some nuggets that bring you freedom. Let me give you a little bit of homework, all right? One truth, your days are limited. One application, take some time to figure out what you're doing with your time and why you do it. Here's how, we're, here's how we can live it out. So here's some homework. What do you need to add to your calendar? If you have something that you say is important and that there's no activity in your important life right now, the truth is you're going to get to the end of your days and you're not going to have lived that important thing. The people that are important to you aren't going to know they're important to you unless you make them important to you today. They're not going to discover they're important to you on your deathbed and you go, I wish I'd spent much more time. That's not how they experience it then. They experience it as regret like you. But you can make changes today. What do you need to add to your calendar? What do you need to take away from your calendar? I think this is us. I, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's not, but I think we're so full of stuff, activity, that has no real importance. It doesn't relate to first things, and it doesn't relate to important things, and it consumes us, and it drives us, and many of us don't even know why. And for some of us, this right here needs to be filled with initials. It's people in your life. 
that have no business sucking the life out of you the way that you've allowed them to. And let's be honest, you've allowed them to. You don't think there's some truth here? Talk to a man who can no longer tuck his kids into bed at night because he let a relationship he shouldn't have had impact the ones he already had, and now he's divorced and his kids are going to bed in somebody else's house because he didn't understand what living first things look like and important things look like. Because in the moment he thought, at worst he thought, or at best he thought this, I'll get to that over there sometime. And yet you can't undo half of these things. So what do you need to stop? What do you need to add? What do you need to do a little more of? And what do you need to do a little less of? I think you could leave here today wrestling with what Moses wrestled with near the end of his days and be wise and don't wait to the end of your days to wrestle with it. And ask yourself a simple question. Forget my agenda for you. Ask your own. What's important to me really? And am I right now making sure that the important things reflect how important they are in my schedule? And what's first for me really? And does my schedule really show that it's important? to me. I think you can take this homework and you can figure some of this out. Here's the deal. This is the life changer because it's a time changer and your time is your life and you only get one. But as I say, if you do it right, you only need one, right? So once you grab out your connect card, it's the one that Pastor Matt and Nate talked to you about earlier. It looks like this and let's take a few steps together. We take next steps because it would be a tragedy to just come to church, hear some cool things, true things, nod our head in agreement, and then go home and not make any changes. So we take next steps in the right direction. Next step A, I want to give you a chance this morning to make the most important decision you'll ever make in life, and that is to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Another way of saying that is the forgiver of your mistakes and then becoming the leader of your life. It looks like this. You say to yourself, God, (laughs) I've been in charge. I've blown it. I've not been perfect. The Bible would call you a sinner. Not a a slam on you. It's just an accurate statement. And then then you say, God, I acknowledge you're the Lord of the universe. You're in charge. But you really haven't been in charge of my life. And I'd like you to stop being simply the Lord I acknowledge out there. And I'd like you to be the God I acknowledge right here. The Lord right here. In a moment, I'm going to pray about that. And you can use my words, borrow mine, use your own. to Say, God, I'm a sinner. I want you to become the Lord of my life. I see that you're the Lord of all, but you haven't been the Lord of me. And I want you to be. I want to accept what you offer me. And I want to try to live my life for you. I won't be perfect, but I want to try to live my life for you. All right, if you want to do that, check the box. And then when the offering bucket comes by, drop it in the offering bucket. It'll be your primary gift to us today. And then we'll follow up with you via the email and just communicate. You're not joining our church. We're not going to ask you for money. I just want to help you understand how precious and important this decision to accept Jesus into your life is. Or next step B, if you want to do this one. You want to go public with your faith and say, I've done this and I want to get baptized. Baptism is the way we go public with our faith and say to the world that Jesus is first to me. And don't look at me to be perfect, but I'm pressing in and I'm wanting to grow and I want more and more him to be the Lord of my life. If you want to do that, check the box. A member of our team will be in touch with you. Again, you put this in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of service. How about next step C? I feel like this might be a few of us. I I don't know. Just throwing it out there, all right? Truth is, Ben, I've drifted, and I want to recommit my life to Jesus as the Lord. I did it before, but the truth is, over the last several weeks, months, years, it has not been important to me. 
my calendar, my heart, other things have grabbed my attention. And I want to today just reaffirm, I want him to be the Lord of my life. You want to do that? Check the box. Let our staff join with you in prayer about this. Our next step, D, let's drill down some, all right? I'm going to go and talk through my homework, right, the one we did up here, with, and then you, you would fill in the blank with a name. It's your spouse, hopefully. These are important marriage conversations. It's your best friend. It's your counselor, your coach, your small group leader. I'm going to talk with this person about these things in my life because it's too important to go another week, another month, another year just living and letting something else set my calendar for me. Now, how about next step E? I bet this is some of us. I know it's me. Pray for me, Ben. Pray for me, church, because I need the boldness to make the changes I already know I need to make. Ben, you didn't say anything I didn't already know. Or maybe you gave some form to some stuff that I was already feeling. And I just need to go make some changes and I'm scared and I need to be bold to just do it. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, you're good. You gave us the gift of your word to help us understand life. God, the truth is our days are numbered. And the reality of that doesn't have to depress us or scare us. It can empower us then to make choices today about our tomorrow. Lord, some folks in this room are making a decision about making you their Lord and Savior. They're saying, I'm a sinner. God, forgive me. Clean my life and become the leader. God, others are making decisions about who they're going to talk to and trying to drill down on the importance of this subject God, the rest of us, we probably already know what we need to do and we just need to follow up. God, I pray that no matter where we're coming from on our journey of faith today, we could take a step towards health. And I pray, Lord, that we would take a step towards you. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Amen.